You have heard it said, give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you'll help feed him for the rest of his life. I've also heard it said that you can build a man a fire and keep him warm for a day. Or you can set a man on fire and keep him warm for the rest of his life. That was Terry Pratchett, by the way, not me. Um, but they're apt words because today, as we approach Luke chapter 9, we approach some stories in which Jesus is preparing his followers, preparing us even, for life after his own death. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, nor staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, nor extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they, the disciples, the twelve, set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this? that I hear such things about, and he tried to see him. You've seen me do it, now it's your turn. You've seen me do it, now it's your turn. And do you know what? I find this so encouraging, that when Jesus commands his closest followers, when Jesus speaks to us today, when we read in his word instructions of how we're to live our lives, to conduct ourselves, the sorts of things we're supposed to do and say and care about. It encourages me that it's never outside the scope of that which Jesus was willing to do himself. That Jesus has actually lived a life, has patterned a ministry, established a way of being human, and it's into that that he calls people to imitate him. As you've seen me do, now it's your turn. From chapter 4 in Luke's Gospel, if you've been working your way through, you'll have seen Jesus doing what he said the prophet Isaiah had predicted he would do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. No matter where Jesus has wandered with his followers, no matter the place that they found themselves in or the people that they've encountered, people who have needed Jesus's love and kindness and compassion, lived out, acted out, people who have needed correcting in their views of God and the world and themselves and, and how everything fits together, they have found and met in Jesus one who is proclaiming good news and restoration. One who has come to, to speak about and to begin the world of making everything that has gone wrong right again. It encourages me that when I read stories like this of Jesus calling his closest followers and instructing them, commanding them about what to do with their lives, it's no further than the exact things that he was willing to do. 
that when we come to Jesus and we find commands and instructions of how we live our lives, basically, it's Jesus telling us to live life after his pattern. Jesus is saying here to his followers, you've seen me, you've experienced me going from place to place, healing, setting free, proclaiming the good news. Now you go and do the same. But it's not just that, is it? It's not just Jesus saying from a distance, observe and try your best, try your hardest to do the same sorts of things. Luke writes, he gave them power and authority before sending them out. It's fitting actually that we should be looking at this story today. It being, if you're watching this live, Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is the Sunday each and every year where Christians and churches around the globe celebrate the fact that having been called to witness even to the ends of the earth, to, to share the story of Jesus, to declare the powerful works of God, that the Holy Spirit was sent to live in us, to dwell in us, to work in us, to work through us. Pentecost Sunday is the Sunday that we celebrate this going global. If you like, what we have here is a trial run of Jesus giving a mission and empowering his followers to do the exact thing that he's called them to do. But this story is for me, first and foremost, just a wonderful example of Jesus wanting to give something, wanting to hand on something to his followers in order for them to take it to others. Jesus has power. Jesus has authority. Jesus has the truth. And he wants to share it with us so that we will share it with those beyond our borders, those beyond our closest circles. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know how you feel about life following Jesus, obeying Jesus, um, doing the things that Jesus has told us to do. Perhaps you've lived that way and you've thought to yourself, it doesn't make any sort of difference. Very often it can be hard to follow in Jesus's footsteps, to obey his commands, even when we've been equipped and empowered to do so. As he's preparing these 12 to go out, he even warns them that they may turn up in certain towns and be rejected. That's just the way things go. I wish Luke had recorded in some senses how many towns they visited, uh, the rallies that they held, how many people were saved in the great revivals as these 12 followers faithfully and obediently went out and did as Jesus told them, but he doesn't. But he does pan the camera to Herod, the tetrarch, the one who had imprisoned John and has by now killed, beheaded John. And he does give us this glimpse, doesn't he? that the news of what Jesus and the news of what Jesus' followers were doing has reached Herod. And it provokes an interest such that he says, I really must find out more about this Jesus. That encourages me that whether I see the fruit of it or not, whether I see the difference that it's making in my life, that God is at work through his people when they obey in his power. The story carries on. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it, 
followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, well, we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish, unless, of course, you're expecting us to go out and buy food for this whole crowd, which is about 5,000 people. But Jesus said to his disciples, have all these people sit down in groups of about 50. And the disciples did it. Everyone sat down and Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and he broke. And then he gave to the disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and they were all satisfied. And the disciples even after that picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The feeding of the 5,000, I'm sure you've heard this story before. We can actually piece together a couple of reasons why Jesus took his disciples off to Bethsaida. From the other Gospels and from a couple of other things that are going on in Luke's Gospel, we know that Jesus is taking them away for at least two reasons. Number one, because the disciples were tired. Because the disciples needed a space and a place in which they could recharge, rest and recuperate. They'd obeyed Jesus. They'd gone out uh, walking vast distances to the, to the diverse and the dispersed towns. They'd walked all the way back. They'd, they'd invested their emotions, their time, their energy in the people who they'd met on these trips. And so they needed time away from it all, time away from the spotlight, time away from the intensity that was Jesus's public ministry. That was reason number one, Jesus was taking them away to this secluded private spot. Reason number two, we need to do a little bit more reading between the lines, but it's because Jesus himself, was low. Jesus himself was tired. Jesus himself, emotionally at least, was um, under pressure. John, his cousin, his close cousin, the one who had been there at his baptism when the heavens opened and that the voice was heard, this is my son in whom um, I love. John had been murdered. You know, we know that Jesus cared when his nearest and dearest died. So this was a sensitive period in his own life and in the life of his disciples. So there's two very good reasons why Jesus and the disciples went to Bethsaida to this remote, to this lonely, to this peaceful and secluded spot. Problem is, life doesn't always go the way we plan, does it? Life very often throws things at us that we aren't expecting or aren't desiring. And naturally, when there's a rumour of Jesus being in town, the crowds gather. What would you expect in that scenario, in that situation? Jesus and his followers deliberately trying to find some privacy and some space, all of a sudden being confronted by such a large crowd. Do you know when I was writing this sermon, my family and I were on lockdown, we were on a quarantine, we were all in the same house for 10 days, no respite, um, no escape. My kids were coming running into the room, daddy, 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 questions that they wanted to ask me, stories that they wanted to tell me, but I was busy. I was there and I was writing this sermon, I was tapping away on my keyboard, it's what I wanted to be doing. And so my response came, not now, not now kids, in a minute, give me a break, give me a chance. I didn't welcome them into my world. 
I didn't put everything on hold to listen to them and to engage with them. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. That's never the case with Jesus. Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't resent the crowds coming, seeking him out and and maybe robbing him of this time to naturally rest and recharge and recuperate. No, what Jesus does is he welcomes them. There is never a bad time for us to come to Jesus. There is never a time when Jesus is going to be grumpy and grouchy and not in the mood. There is never going to be a time where Jesus is distracted. There is never going to be a time when Jesus has something more important going on. We can always come to Jesus and he will always welcome us. And they did. They came to him. He welcomed them and it says this, that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what Jesus said he was going to do. That's what Jesus has been doing. That's what Jesus sent his disciples out to do. And now this is just what he keeps on doing. Sharing, informing, teaching, shaping people in the way that they think and they see the world. And healing them, loving them, acting, providing whatever way he can for them. You see, Jesus is a doctor who looks at us, sees what we need, and is so willing to give it. But he's not the only one who sees a need. The story carries on, and actually, it's the disciples who bring up the hunger that must be being felt in this crowd. They themselves, perhaps, are starting to get a little bit hungry. And so they turn to Jesus and they say, Teacher, Master, Lord, let's send everyone away so that they can go and get some food. Now, we have this temptation, we have this um, kind of sense sometimes when any story involving the disciples, um, we come with a judgmental bias. We come thinking very little of them and read the story as if they're being uncaring and Jesus is the only one who, who cares a job for us. Let's just give them a little crumb of respect for a moment. Remember that they've been out. They've been obedient to Jesus. They've been spending themselves for the sake of the the people that they've encountered in the towns and the villages they've gone to. My guess is they're just as happy as Jesus was to welcome the crowd. And they spot and they see and they have this concern. More than that, what little they do have, five loaves and two fish, they end up giving to Jesus in order to to serve, to minister to these people. It's not very much in their opinion. It's certainly not enough to do the job, but everything they have, they're willing to sacrifice in order to help feed these people. If the first story of Jesus sending out the 12 teaches us that Jesus wants to give what he has so that we would take it out to others, then surely the second story teaches us that Jesus wants us to give what we have so that other people can have as well. I think the two stories work in tandem. They work together to teach us that whether it's with our own resources or with God's resources, we're supposed to come via Jesus in order to go out and bless others. There's a pattern forming, do you see it? That Jesus wants what it has and is held, not to be held on to, but to be given away. Jesus did it to the disciples, to the towns, and now Jesus is encouraging the disciples to do it with what they have to him and to the crowd, to go out 
and to bless others. That, that is what Jesus wants us to do. That is what Jesus is preparing his followers here and is preparing for us now, centuries down the line, to, to, to be, to live life after his death, to be a people who want to bless others. Let's keep on moving through the passage of the story. We're getting closer to the end. Once when Jesus was praying in a private place and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do you, who do the crowd say, rather, that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets from long ago who's come back to life. But, said Jesus, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter steps forward, the representative of this close gang, this close troop. You are God's Messiah. You are the promised one of old. You are the rescuer, the hero of the story. You're the, the king, the prophet, the priest who's come to put everything back as it's supposed to be. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. In fact, he added, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Who is Jesus? That's a simple question that's been asked and argued about in every single place where his name has been shared. And Jesus begins by asking, who do the crowds say I am? Well, we already knew who the crowds said Jesus was. We'd heard it, heard by Herod earlier in the story, and now the disciples just share the same information. They've got these ideas that he's John the Baptist, that he's Elijah finally returned, that he's one of the prophets raised from the dead. But Jesus asks, more important than what other people say in response to that question, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And Peter, I can only imagine on behalf of the, the entire gang, stands forward and says, you are God's Messiah, the promised one. You see, there were lots of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle out on the table by now, weren't there? The crowds had heard Jesus' teaching. The crowds had witnessed and experienced his miracles. And they were starting to arrange the pieces in lots and lots of different ways. No matter how we read this story, uh, we can't read it where there's an obvious answer. We can't read it that there's only one possible answer. But we can read it that there is a true answer, and that is the answer that Peter gave. You see, Peter and the disciples, out of all the people who had seen and witnessed and experienced the, the same sort of stuff, they were starting to put the pieces together in the right way. And Jesus, being one who, who doesn't want to keep things to himself, but to, to, to offer it, to share it with, with those around him, wants to fill in that, that picture doesn't want them to have to wait until all the pieces have been put in place before they can see. He holds up the lid of the box and he says, you are on the right tracks and this is what it looks like. For me to be the Messiah, for me to be the promised one, for me to be the one who's come to put all things right, I'm going to have to die before rising to life again. Are you seeing the pattern that's emerging here in all of these stories, in all of these instances? The pattern of, of having something and giving it and sharing it 
and wanting it to be passed on. Jesus did it with his power and his authority and his teaching. Jesus did it with the bread and the fish, the snacks that they had. And now Jesus is saying that ultimately, more than that, over and above all that, foundationally, underneath all of that, this is who he is. Someone who wants to give us everything that he has, even his own very life. Here's the picture on the box. Here's here's where the pieces of the puzzle fit together for us, that Jesus is not a holder. Jesus is not a selfish individual. He's the promised one of old who has come to put it all right by giving his very self. That in order to bless everyone, Jesus has come to give us his very life. Can I ask you this morning this very personal question? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he someone who can just teach you things? Is he someone who can interest you and entertain you? Is he someone who can maybe give and provide for you in one sphere or one avenue of your life? Listen, Jesus is all of those things, but those are merely pieces of the puzzle. As we've walked through Luke's gospel, as we continue to walk through Luke's gospel, his retelling of Jesus' life and ministry, I hope that you would see that those pieces are supposed to come together and to be arranged in this way. That he is the one. He is the one from whom we get everything. He is the one in whom we find hope for this life and hope for the life to come. Herod knew about these pieces. He was interested. He thought perhaps they needed to be put together in a certain way that the the crowds, the masses hadn't yet arranged them. But he never pursued that. He didn't pursue Jesus. He didn't make more of that interest that had been piqued. He didn't find out for himself. Don't make Herod's mistake. Don't come, spot, learn certain things about Jesus without coming to know him and recognise him and, and benefit him truly for yourself. You know, you can come to him even right now. Remember, there is no bad time. He never turns folks away. Come to him. Admit that you need him. Listen to his voice. Obey him. Sit down on the grass as he instructs you and receive what it is that he has to give to you. Receive more than than you even know what to do with. Receive life. Receive acceptance. Receive forgiveness. Receive purpose, receive joy, receive peace, receive hope. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He will not turn you away. The very final section. Jesus then says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose it, forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I began by saying that this is a story These are stories about Jesus beginning to prepare his followers, beginning to prepare 
us for life after his death. What does life look like for us after Jesus' death? What does life look like for those who have finished the jigsaw and put the pieces together and seen that this is who Jesus is, not someone who holds on to what he has and keeps it for himself, but someone who gives freely and abundantly so that everybody else may benefit? What does life look like following him, imitating him, coming after him, coming in him? Well, it looks like this. It looks like taking anything and everything that we have and giving it away just as freely. You see, part of what Jesus has freed us from is that need, that sense that we have to be selfish. That what we have, we need to be careful with because once it's gone, it's gone and we'll never get it back. If Jesus really is the Messiah that Peter proclaims him to be, if Jesus is the one who is willing to pass on power and authority, if Jesus is the one who is willing to take the five loaves and the two fish, everything that the disciples had, take it from them and multiply it and give it to them so that in the end they collect up leftovers, 12 baskets full, far more than they even had at the start. If he is the one who has come, to die and rise again in our place, to offer us life eternal that starts now and extends on forever. If that who is who Jesus is, then we don't need to be scared. We don't need to be selfish. We don't need to be um, Scrooges, uh, miserly people who hold on. We get to live imitating Christ's charity, his generosity, He can empower us to be people by his spirit who are willing to sacrifice for the sake, for the benefit of those around us. It's a test, really. It's a test to see whether we've really understood how generous Jesus is. Whether we've really been changed by how generous Jesus is. Whether we actually want to benefit from Jesus and we want to follow him and walk in his footsteps. Do we know him? as someone who will not withhold any good thing from us. If we do, then we will not withhold any good thing from those around us who need it. Because that's who we are as followers of Christ. People who receive much and are therefore willing to give much. You know, when the head is generous, the body will be generous too. And that is what we learn in these stories. That Jesus does not hold on to that which he has, but he gives it out. He multiplies it and he instructs us to do likewise. I hope that you've seen the picture on the box. I hope that you recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the one who isn't just giving little bits here and there, but gives his very self. Please, 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 even now come to him, admit him, accept your need for him. Find everything you ever will need in him. And as we walk following his pattern, my prayer is that we will be a generous people. A people who do not selfishly hoard his blessings for ourselves, but freely pass them on to those who need them, us around us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your generosity in Jesus. You did not spare your son, Father, but gave him that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Lord, that is good news, that is great news, that has been passed on, that has been freely shared with us and we freely share it with others. But Lord, let it not stop with just the words that we speak. Let it continue with the actions 
of our lives. Help us to be a generous people after Jesus' pattern of generosity with us. Help us, Lord, to, in Jesus' footstep, embrace becoming poor so that we might enrich other people. Lord, as we've made our way through the, the Gospel of Luke time and time again, we've encountered those who would tear other people down for their own benefit. And we've seen in Jesus someone entirely different, someone who would spend of himself for the enriching of others. Lord, we praise you, we glorify you for that this morning. And we ask that you would help us more and more to look like that. In Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen.